Good morning, everybody. I want to invite you guys to turn over to 1 John chapter 5 this morning. That's where we're going to spend the next bit of time together. Unpacking slowly but surely 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 to 12. While you're turning over that way, I want to tell you about an article a buddy of mine sent me this week. Uh, it was an article that was breaking down the results of a recent study about religion in America. It's a study put out by a group. Uh, funded by the Pew Trust. They, they are really into religion. They have a lot of money to spend, and they spend their money a lot of time studying religion in America. Lots of stats, percentages. Some of you are going to like this, and others of you are not. Be patient with me. Here's some really interesting results. Trust me. Here we go. So they asked people in this Pew study, do you believe in God? Seems like a pretty straightforward question. The answers were anything but straightforward. So, so let, me just, let me just give you some, some of these results. In answer to that question, do you believe in God? Four out of five people that they interviewed in America say yes. Okay, that's 80%. That's a lot of people. Of those who say yes, of that 80%, seven out of ten say they believe in the God of the Bible. That was a phrase that Pew folks used. They didn't define what that meant. But So seven out of, seven out of ten of the 80% of us that say that we believe in God say they believe in the God of the Bible. The other three out of ten believe in some other higher power. Now, of those who say they don't believe in God, so this is one out of five of Americans, half of those people say they believe in a higher power or some sort of spiritual force in the universe. You take these results one layer down, one step further beneath the surface, and I think things get even more confusing. So here we go. Of those who answered that they were religiously unaffiliated, often called the nuns. They have no religious uh, affiliation that they claim with some sort of uh, known labeled religion or religious institution. The, the 17% of the people who say they have no religion say they believe in the God of the Bible, whatever that means to them. 20% of self-described Christians interviewed in this study believe in a higher power, but not the God of the Bible. Are you confused? Oh, you should be. This is some confusing results. Uh, it kind of makes you wonder what went into this study and whether the people who designed it were qualified to administer it. But, I mean, let's just say that they were. I, I, I think the confusion makes sense, and the closer your attention to these results, the less sense that the results make, and the more you can sympathize with the journalist's conclusion. The guy who was, who was talking about this, this study, he says, and I quote, how we talk about God and faith should never be reduced to a simple binary. You think... And of course, he's talking, about, uh, he's talking about how we describe religion in America. When you're talking about our, do people in America believe in God, you can't use little simple yes or no answers about that because the results are really mixed and confusing. I think he's exactly right. But I think that one of the reasons that the state of religion in America is what it is and that you can't talk about what American people think about religion in binary ways is that we actually don't look at religion itself in binary ways. We're dis, we have a distaste for either ors, for absolute statements when it comes to God. For statements like this one. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's the binary statement that John uses to end the passage we're going to be looking at together this morning. And it's, uh, it's the kind of choice 
the kind of either or that John has been confronting us with from the very beginning of this letter, this is one of his main purposes for writing, was to sort of punch his friends in the face over and over again with a choice that they will make in one, one way or another. Confronting them with a question that, that he confronts us with through this same letter today. Who is Jesus to you? And he stay, I think he stays with this thing right here to the end of the letter, from the beginning of it to the end of it, partly because he believes that, that life and death hinge on the answer to that question. Who is Jesus to you? Your life depends on how you answer that question. Now, I realize if you're investigating what's involved with Christianity this morning, if, if, you've, if, you've not, uh, if, if you maybe don't have a lot of experience with, with what Christians believe and you've come here this morning partly to get a taste of it for yourself, I, I realize that maybe a statement like the one I just read uh, can, can seem unreasonable to you at best and maybe arrogant at worst. And if you're feeling that way this morning, the first thing I want to do is add my welcome to Seth's and say, thank you for coming. We're so glad you're here. And I hope what we're going to do this morning and unpacking this passage is going to help you get a better sense of who Jesus is. The, the, The next thing I'll say is that if you feel yourself already sort of reacting against, bristling against the either or choice John is going to give you this morning when it comes to Jesus. I want to, I want to ask you please just to, to bear with us, to be patient and to, to, to walk carefully with us through what John has to say this morning. I want to just try to help you understand why John believes what he does about Jesus. What is it that he's saying? Why is he so concerned to make sure we understand it? And I think as, as we do, by the end of our time together this morning, I believe you'll understand something more about why Jesus offers something nobody else can. Why what Jesus came to offer is why only Jesus can offer it. That he wants to give you something that isn't available to you anywhere else you can go. Only Jesus can give you what you need. I think by the end of the time, you'll at least understand why John believes that. And what my prayer will be as we go through this passage together this morning is that by the end of the time, you'll see that for yourself. Now, I want to begin by reading these verses. I'm going to warn you, these verses, uh, well, they're complicated. So I'm going to read them, and then I want to, I want to walk through them piece by piece this morning. What I want to do through walking through them piece by piece uh, and trying to trace the, 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 the line of thought together carefully is really just bring you back to two simple statements that John wants you to leave this passage understanding and embracing. That only Jesus can forgive your sins and that only Jesus can give you life. And through the twists and turns we're going to take together this morning, we're going to come to those two simple statements and with God's help, understand why they're so important for us to hear this morning. I want to first begin by reading this passage. I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. I'm going to pick up in, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, and then read through uh, verse 12. This, friends, is the word of the Lord to us. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. 
If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he's born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever doesn't have the son of God does not have life. This is God's word. You can be seated. Only Jesus can forgive our sins. That's what John wants us to take, I believe, from the first few verses that I just read to you. These first few verses, it's it's like John is calling witnesses to who Jesus is. That courtroom imagery is absolutely behind this passage, even if it didn't come through clearly when we first read through it. One of the reasons that John mentions that uh, that there are more than one witness attesting to who Jesus is is that he's pulling from language from the Old Testament law that Israel depended on, where if you wanted to bring a charge against somebody and have it stand up, in court, so to speak, you had to have more than one witness. Just one guy wasn't enough. You had to have two or three witnesses. So, so John is saying, look, this, this will hold up in a court of law. And it's like he's presenting God himself as the one who's, who's orchestrating this testimony. Think of God as the, the prosecuting attorney who, who's trying to convince you of something. And he brings in his witnesses one by one. And there are three of them. And they all say the same thing. And they all tell you that only Jesus can give you what you need. That much is, is clear about what John is trying to do in these first few verses. He's trying to assemble witnesses to convince you and to convince his first readers that Jesus is the Son of God, worthy of their trust. That's clear. Uh, Unfortunately, that's where the clarity stops, at least when it comes to these first few verses. Uh, He doesn't tell us what these three witnesses are, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. He doesn't tell us what those three witnesses say and how they say maybe slightly different things from one another, how they add and build to this comprehensive case for Jesus. He doesn't tell us why these three witnesses seal the deal, why they leave no doubt about who Jesus is. Uh, What we trust is that John knew his audience. He knew the people he was writing to. He knew what they would need to hear. He knew they would know what he meant. And so he wrote this letter to them. Now, as Christians... Uh, Christians believe that that God has spoken to us in the Bible, that this whole book is his testimony to us and that he's spoken in a way that cuts through all the things that separate us from the first people who who heard and read this letter. He he, he has spoken in a way that we can understand his message. Even though our culture and our expectations and the kinds of things we bring to the text when we read it are so different from what they would have brought to it. We, We trust that. But, but we also believe that the Bible is put into history, that God chose to use this man and his assumptions and his experiences and his knowledge to write to these people a specific and personal letter that they needed. That part of what gives it its value to us is that it was really, really valuable to them in its original context. And that, that sometimes, because the Bible was written to specific people in a specific time and place, some of the things about their time and place that we that are lost on us are difficult for us to recover as we read the Bible. One of the things that it takes for us to read the Bible well is to consider it as a kind of foreign country that we visit, to respect it as a country and a people and a culture that's different from us but also like us, similar to us and worthy of our attention. 
when you go into a foreign country, if you ever travel abroad, I mean, one of the things that you notice pretty quickly is that they do things different here than what I'm used to. But I think when we go in with a, in a way that's sensitive and, and that's actually trying to learn from them, you assume that the things I don't understand, they have good reasons for. They understand what they're doing. I wouldn't have done it that way necessarily. I don't get it, but, but it's not random. They're not crazy. They know what they're up to. So my job as a visitor of their time and their, play, or their, their culture, rather, is to, is to try to understand on their terms what's going on here. And, and that's what we have in front of us as a, as a job, a challenge, if you will, when we come to the Bible to try to approach it with respect and sensitivity, to try to understand what they were dealing with is a little different from what we are and that we're going to work hard to try to see it as they saw it. Whatever John was getting at in these verses, uh, his people would have understood. As one commentator put it, though, I mean, to to the modern reader, this statement about the three witnesses uh, agreeing and testifying to Jesus Unfortunately, it's a statement that obscures rather than clarifies what he's trying to say. I, uh, I'm not going to go into all the different views about all the different pieces to these first few verses this morning. Partly because there's so many different views about what John means by things like water and blood and spirit and the testimony and agreeing. Uh, that, that they're too, too much to summarize in a place like this. The other thing is I just don't think that there's clarity that comes even from all of these views on some of what's going on in, this, in these verses. But the most important reason, I'm not going to go there, is that I want to focus on what is clear. The key core message that John is meaning to communicate to his readers and through them to us this morning is clear when we look carefully and understand the bigger context of his letter. And so I want to focus our attention there on what John wants us to get from this witness to Jesus and the key clue, the thing to notice among what we've read, the verses we've read uh, earlier, comes out in verse 6. In verse 6, John tells his friends that this Jesus, he's the one who came by the water and the blood. And then he tells us, after he said that, he says, not by the water only, but by water and blood. Most everybody sees in this, in this qualification, and it's not by water only, but water in the blood, most everybody sees in that John trying to correct some misunderstanding. Something in his original context here. Somebody had been challenging whether or not Jesus came in the blood, whatever that means, and we're going to get into it. Somebody had been saying, no, 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 he didn't come in the blood. He came in the water, but he didn't come in the blood. And John's writing to say, no, 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 if you miss the blood... You miss Jesus. Most of us see that this is, a, this is him jabbing back at some attack some other teachers have made on his teaching. And what these teachers had built for his friends was a version of Jesus that had no need for, no place for a cross. Now, I want to I help you see where that's coming from a little bit this morning and then talk about why it's so important for us. So, So most people take water, a reference to Jesus coming as one who came in water or by water, to be a reference to baptism. Uh, One of the most important events in Jesus' life was his baptism by a man named John the Baptist, who was roaming around uh, ancient Israel, baptizing people, calling them to repentance. 
and to faith in what God was bringing, a promise of forgiveness that we believe was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus himself goes to John the Baptist and is baptized. And in the story that John tells in his gospel, the gospel is another, another book in the New Testament that tells the story of Jesus and what he taught and what he, kinds of things that he did. And, and John, the man behind this letter, is most likely behind that story. And in that gospel, when he tells the story of Jesus' baptism, he includes some words that help us understand what it means and it probably are behind the teaching that Jesus came by water. Specifically, what we see in that story is as Jesus is baptized, a bird comes down and lands on him. And the, the writer tells us that that was a symbol of God's spirit coming down on Jesus. That the spirit of God made himself visible somehow in that event so that people who were watching would know this Jesus is not normal. He's not the same as these other folks who have come here and been baptized by John. Something new is happening here. Something John had just been pointing to is actually happening in right in front of you in your experience. And then we're told at the end of that account that Jesus is one who would baptize not just by water like John did, but would baptize by the spirit. That he would give God's own spirit to God's people. So, so people interpreting the meaning of this phrase that, that Jesus came by water see in it a kind of package reference to that story of Jesus' baptism. So when you refer to Jesus coming by water, you're referring not just to his own baptism, to his ministry of baptism, and not just to actually putting people into water and raising them back up again, but to the spirit that Jesus baptizes his children with. So, whatever water means, let's say it means something like what we've just described, it wasn't controversial, apparently, in John's friend, among John's friends. Whoever was teaching them after John left didn't challenge the fact that Jesus had a ministry of giving the Spirit to others through baptism. That part was agreed upon. In fact, if we piece together what we know about this, this group of teachers from other things John said in his letter, it looks like that would have been probably their favorite thing about Jesus. What they were really into, what they were wanting, was a Jesus who could give them some new spiritual experiences that they hadn't had before. Jesus as the conduit to some sort of higher consciousness or enlightenment that they couldn't get somewhere else. So they would have loved the fact that Jesus was this conduit of God's spirit that takes them to a higher level. That part would have made sense to them. They were looking for an intimate, personal experience of God. And Jesus' baptism is, is partly a promise that you can have that through him. What they had no place for was the Jesus who needed a body to do what he did. In fact, one of the earliest Christian uh, uh, corruptions of Christian teaching was a teaching that, that Jesus, a human, had the spirit of God come down on him when he was baptized and then help him do lots of miracles while he was, while he was doing what he was doing on earth. And through him came and gave spiritual experiences to other people, but then before he died, left them. So what died on the cross was just a man. The spirit was just along for the ride for part of his life, but then leaves. It seems like some of that's already happening here in this, in this community that John's writing to. And what he's writing to tell them is that, no, no, water's not enough. Yes, Jesus brought the Spirit, and you need that. You desperately need God's Spirit to be in you so that you can know him in a personal, powerful way. But, but, but this Jesus didn't just bring new knowledge 
or new spiritual experiences. This Jesus came to shed blood. And for these teachers, that was a bridge too far. They couldn't take that. That was embarrassing to them. Jesus is bleeding sacrifice. So that, that, that's not something we need. Certainly not something we're looking for. In fact, it would have involved him in what Greek thinkers, like the, the enlightened ones, the ones people aspired to be like, it would have involved Jesus in the kind of things they were hoping to escape. They didn't like bodies. They certainly didn't like primitive notions of pagan sacrifice. They were more enlightened than that. They weren't looking to go back to the dark ages. One of the things that can be lost on us sometimes, I think, is how tough the cross was as a pill to swallow in its own day. Way back then, when people were supposedly more primitive than we are now. The cross was, was an impossible pill for many of them to swallow. Lots of different reasons for that, but Paul called it foolishness, especially to the Greeks. We may not be sure exactly what they were teaching, but we do know they weren't looking for blood sacrifice. And John's saying here the same thing that he said over and over through this letter. No, 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 not so fast. Yeah, he came by water, but he came by blood too. He's, I think, just, I think what he's doing by just saying blood and moving on is assuming people have already taken his point a point that he's made in this letter over and over and over again, almost redundantly. The point that he made in verse 7 of chapter 1, where he promised that the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sins. The point that he made in chapter 2, at the beginning of the chapter, when he says that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. What John meant there is that he was a sacrifice who died to absorb the wrath our sins deserve, says the same thing in chapter 4. Blood is something he had in mind in chapter 3, verse 16, when he says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. He had to die. He needed blood to do that. And it's what he has in, his, in mind in, in chapter 4 when he says that now we see that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world so that now we've come to know and to believe that God loves us. For Him, the love of God is measured in the blood of Christ. And He hits this drum over and over and over because He knows His friends were tempted to think it wasn't necessary. And in the providence of God, he hits this drum over and over and over because he knew that one day we would have trouble seeing why it's necessary. John's saying, if you miss the point of, his, of Jesus' blood, then you miss Jesus. Because what you'll miss if you lose the blood is the fact that only Jesus can forgive our sins. Without blood, Jesus is nobody's savior. Why? John knows that our forgiveness depends on blood. Now, let me make this as clear as I can. If you've been lost by all the, the twists and turns we've taken so far, forgive me for that and come back to me right now because this is the key. This is why John is saying what he's saying for all we may not be able to recover about the meaning of some of these phrases. This part's clear and you need to hear it this morning, friends. Your life might depend on it. 
These people were ashamed of a bleeding and dying Jesus. And it's just as easy for us to be ashamed of a bleeding Savior today. And, and if, you, if what you seek is, in, is enlightenment like they did, if what you seek is a life that others may notice and admire, if what you're after is, is just some newer or, or more intense spiritual experience, then, then what you'll find is the same thing they did. Blood, Jesus dying as a bleeding sacrifice will always be an embarrassment to you. But blood was offensive to them and it's offensive to us to the same extent that we don't see sin as a problem. But if you know you need forgiveness, if you know that you need more than just enlightenment or a new and more intense spiritual experience, if you know that you as a person need to be forgiven for something you've done, if you know you need forgiveness, it's another matter. What you know about forgiveness is that forgiveness always means pain for the person who's going to forgive you, always. It always means that they're willing to pay the cost that your sin brought into their life rather than demanding that you pay it, rather than demanding satisfaction, rather than just cutting you off or cutting you out of their life. If they're going to forgive you, they're going to have to absorb to eat the pain that your sin against them brought to them. Forgiveness always hurts. And what Jesus' blood shows, poured out through a death he willingly died, is that God understands what forgiveness costs and he's not afraid to pay it. If you take blood out of Jesus' ministry, you have a God who is not accounting for what forgiveness for your sins is going to cost. But John's message is that he knows. He knows the score. It's why he came. It's why the Son of God put on flesh. There's no other way for him to forgive you. So do you want to be forgiven, friend? The message of John in these verses is that you can be. And not because I say so, and not because you say so, and not because some friend that you respect tells you that you can be forgiven. The reason you can be forgiven this morning is that the God you've sinned against says you can be. This is the testimony of God that he's born concerning his son, John says. And the witnesses all agree. The spirit who testifies tells you that his blood was enough. And that if you'll trust in him, he can forgive you too. That promise is written in his blood. So believe him this morning. John's trying to tell us in these first few verses that only Jesus can forgive our sins. That's why he's given us this, this sharp binary, either or. You've got Jesus and you've got life, or you don't have Jesus and you don't have life because there's only one way to forgiveness from the God who made you, and it's through the blood of Jesus. But John doesn't stop there. In, in the last couple of verses that we read, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 5, John shifts his focus from what Jesus, by his blood, takes away from us. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. They don't define who we are anymore. They, they are as dead as the real death Jesus died. In God's eyes, they, they are over. That's something he takes away. 
In these next two verses, though, in verses 11 and 12, John points us to what Jesus gives us positively, something we didn't have before that now we do have because of him. And he summarizes it with the promise of life. He says, once again, talking about God's testimony, what has God said to us about who he is and what he's done, about who we can be to him through Christ? This is the testimony, he says in verse 11. Here's what God says. That God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever doesn't have the son does not have life. Now, this is another one of those places where John doesn't, at least in this section, he doesn't tell us exactly what he means. He says eternal life and he's depending on his readers already knowing what he means about eternal life. So we have to track with him. We have to dig a little bit into what he said before to figure out what he's promising when he says that Jesus and anyone who has Jesus has life. What does that mean? What is eternal life as John defines it? To figure that out, I think it makes a lot of sense to look into John's gospel. I mentioned it already today. There's a a book that's much longer than this letter. It's known as the Gospel of John. It tells the story of Jesus' life and a lot of his teaching, not just what he did, but what he said about what he was doing. And John recorded that and presumably taught it to the people he's writing this letter to because he was one who had seen it for himself and he'd heard Jesus give these words for himself. And and Jesus made him responsible as an eyewitness for passing on these teachings to people like us 2,000 years later. So if we go there to, sort of to, to the original, if we go to the, to the gospel of John and look at what Jesus says there about life, then we'll know what John means when he says here, whoever has the son has life. Whoever doesn't have the son does not have life. And that's what I want to do with the rest of the time we have this morning. What does it mean to have the son? What do you have when you have him? What is this life that he gives that no one else can? If John's gospel is our guide, then one thing we have to say about this life is that it begins immediately. It is, also, it is not just something in the future. It's a quality of life that starts now. You can see that already hinted at here in, in the passage we just read. Because he's saying God gave us eternal life. Past tense It's something you've got already if you're in Jesus. What is it? Same thing comes out in the gospels that... There's a quality of life that begins now as soon as you have Jesus. What quality of life is that? Where might you see your need for it in what you're experiencing now? That's what I want to probe at for a little bit. First we're going to talk about what is this quality of life and then we'll talk about the eternal part that John also mentioned. So this, this quality of life, what is it to have this life now? One of my favorite places that John, where, where John goes there, so to speak, in his gospel is in uh, John chapter 6. In fact, you may want to flip over there with me while I talk to you about this story. John's gospel now, I'm not talking about the letter anymore, I'm talking about the gospel. John chapter 6. John tells a story that comes up in every one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. It's the only story that comes across in all, in all of them besides Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's a story of Jesus feeding 5,000 hungry people with just the snack of a little boy. Think goldfish crackers, only it was more like sardines. 
This little boy has a snack, no one else has anything to eat, and Jesus just keeps dividing that snack and handing it out, dividing it and handing it out, dividing it and handing it out until everybody who was there, all 5,000 plus of them, eats their fill and there's leftovers afterwards. It's an incredible miracle. What John draws our attention to, though, when he tells about it uh, in John chapter 6 is what Jesus says about what he's just done. He wants to draw our attention to Jesus' words about what this miracle is pointing to because it's, it's a symbol of something Jesus came to do. Right after Jesus has done this, what happens to these people who just had their bellies full? Same thing that happens to me and you when our bellies get full a few hours later, we're hungry again. So these hungry people start searching for Jesus. They want more food. They've got material goals that matter to them. They see Jesus as the way to get their material goals fulfilled. And so they're after him for more of what he's already given them, more of what they already want. They find Jesus. They're still hungry. And Jesus says, he basically just calls them on it. He says, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You want me now just because you want more food. But he tells them, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Okay, same words that John's using here in this letter. Which the Son of Man will give you. In other words, Jesus doesn't want them controlled by their stomachs. They're only coming to him because of this hunger that they have. He wants them to see a deeper hunger, one they have not labeled yet, one they aren't feeding in the proper way. A deep hunger of soul that is still unsatisfied for them. That's what's on Jesus' mind. He knows they're looking for something they haven't tasted yet. They want more, but they don't know what they want. They don't understand it. And that's the hunger that Jesus came to satisfy. Listen to what he says in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Me. It's not just what I give, it's me. I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Picks up the same themes a few verses later. Verse 47, I say to you, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Same words John is using in his letter. I am the bread of life. I think what Jesus is getting at is that he came to give a life that he called an abundant life. A life that isn't defined by what it isn't, but by what it is. A life in which you aren't craving, hungry, always wanting more, never satisfied. You know what that feels like, right? To have goals that you pursue, futures that you imagine for yourself, and then then you get them. And they don't deliver the way you thought they would. Or once they deliver, uh, you realize that they came with strings attached that you didn't know would be there. Downsides that tend to to rise up and dominate your field of view. Jesus knows what it is to, to sort of live in life chasing that next hit of stuff, pleasure that lasts for a minute and then then it's over. The way that we tend to sort of blow into our life, imagine your life as a, as a balloon and we're just puffing into it and it, it grows, it expands. It looks like it has weight and substance, but it doesn't. It's empty. He knows the kind of craving in your soul that comes when you experience life like that. And he doesn't want that for you. 
He wants you to be satisfied. He wants you to enjoy a quality of life now that he calls abundant and that he came to give you. So when John says that whoever has the Son has life, part of what he means is that whoever has the Son knows this satisfaction. Are you satisfied? If you aren't, friend, what you're feeling is your need for Jesus. Only Jesus can give you life. John's partly talking about here this, this quality of life, a satisfaction that, that he promises he can give us now. But there is more to what he's talking about when he says eternal life. The eternal part really does matter. It's one of the favorite phrases that Jesus uses in John's gospel. He talks about eternal life all the time. In fact, one, one writer put, as one writer put it, a lot of times in the other gospels, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God a lot. I came to establish the kingdom. In John's gospel, he barely ever uses the kingdom of God. He uses eternal life instead. Eternal life is his catchphrase for everything he came to do, for what he came to establish, for the life he wants for his people. What is this eternal life? Right here in this passage, John chapter 6, Jesus is pointing us towards something of this meaning. It's, it's bigger than, than even the satisfaction we've talked about already. These people who've come to Jesus for another miracle, they come to him hoping to use Jesus to get something they already cared about. These friends, they were hungry. They wanted more food. They wanted material security, which wasn't easy to come by in the ancient world. They wanted to use Jesus for the things that were already important to them. But Jesus tries to flip the conversation on them. He wants to give them more perspective. He wants to remind them, in other words, that they could eat their fill from now until the day they die and still die. Listen to what he says in verse 49, chapter 6. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. It's a reference to a story of in Israel's past when God fed them from heaven. They ate manna that came straight down from God's hand, all right? So imagine your material security comes straight from God every morning. You don't even have to go to the store to get it. So that's basically best case scenario. Food just falls in your lap. And so imagine that. Imagine you get what they got. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Verse 49 says, and they died. Still ended badly for them. This is the bread, the bread Jesus is talking about, the bread that is him offered to you. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, Jesus said. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's using categories they were already using, but he's reframing them entirely. They cared about material security. Give me something to eat. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to give you something far more than that. It's not okay with me that you die with a full belly. That's not okay. That outcome is unacceptable. I am the bread of life. You eat of me. You take me into yourself. You accept me by faith and you live forever. That's what he's saying. And friends, the the exclusivity of Jesus 
that John has just confronted us with in this passage. The either-or. You have Jesus in life, you don't have Jesus, and you don't have life. That either-or choice is all about whether or not Jesus can give us a life that won't end. Jesus wants them fixated not on the pressing concerns they have today. Give us more food. He wants them fixated on the guaranteed losses of tomorrow. We'll lose everything. He doesn't want them to die with full bellies. Think, think with me even further. Let's extend this a little bit more. Let's just work this images, imagery a little bit more so you can see why John says what he does. I especially want to push this a little bit further because I know that sometimes talk about eternal life can shut down a conversation. It can sound so churchy. It can sound so escapist, almost like it's just this code word that we use because we always have. And if that's been your reaction to language of eternal life, please stick with me here for the end. Just consider for a minute just how fragile life is. Life has been called a vapor, and I think you can see why. It just doesn't last. It's like a puff of air on a cold morning. Poof, you can see it there for a second, and then gone. And earlier, Seth prayed over the fallout from the, the mass shooting right here in our own city this last week. I mean, you're, you're at a waffle house eating waffles, and someone walks through the door with a machine gun. Gone. Over. And a lot of times, friends, our our heads are turned by stories like that because the details are just so bizarre and unexpected. And sometimes subtly, without recognizing it, we begin to think of death like that. Death is what happens when you're in a waffle house at the wrong time and a machine gun walks through the door. And and, and maybe our, our examples of the fragility of life aren't always so poignant, so obvious as that one is. But there isn't one person sitting here right now in this room that's going to survive life in this world. It may not be a machine gun, friend, but you you will die. Jesus knows that. Our lives are fragile. Vapor and nothing more. But 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 they are more, aren't they? I mean, yeah, of course they're not going to last. Of course life is fragile, but it, but is anything more precious? Then human life, is there anything that weighs more, that matters more to us? No, of course there isn't, especially if you think about the people who are close to you. So, so we know that life is a vapor, a puff of breath on a cold morning, then gone. But don't try to tell me my toddler is a vapor. If you think my toddler is a vapor, you haven't heard what his laugh sounds like when you tickle him to the max capacity and he jumps from like first into third gear and it's basically just this clicking sound that he makes like like full-on body tensed up clicking sound you clearly haven't heard him make that sound if you think his life is a vapor you haven't seen what his face looks like when his mom leaves the room or you cut him off tell him that dinner's over The, the the closed eyes open mouth cry wail of despair where his lip actually curves up and down up and down just like a cartoon character you haven't seen that if you think that my son's life is a vapor you haven't seen what his eyes looked like when he when he bends his head down he's pretending to be a cowboy he bends his head down and his eyes up and he furrows his brow while he looks at you you haven't seen that if you think that his life is just a vapor 
There is nothing more valuable in our experience than the lives of those who are close to us. Just think of one person that matters to you. And you'll know that their lives may be fragile, but they are not dispensable. How can something so fleeting, so frat, be, 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 be so precious? How can something so valuable be so fragile? It shouldn't be. And if it doesn't feel right to you, friend, if you're feeling the tension, then what you're feeling is your need for Jesus. Because in his coming and in his dying and in his rising again, Jesus has told us, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Jesus is framing for us his promise that eternal life, the lives we were made to enjoy, is possible for us through him. But only through him. I hope you're starting to see a little bit of the picture here. Why getting Jesus right matters so much. Friend, you need forgiveness. Only Jesus can forgive you. He died so that he could have the right to do that. And friend, what you need is not this future you've imagined for yourself. What you need is life that won't end. And only Jesus can give that to you. Because he didn't come just to help you have better answers to some sort of trivia questions at a dinner party. He is not here just for your enlightenment. And he did not come just to help you enjoy more spiritual experiences on the way to the grave. He came to die and to rise again so that you could live forever with him. And that's why John tells us, whoever has the son has life. That's what it is to have him. Whoever doesn't have the Son, they don't have life. So believe in Him. Father, I pray that you give us faith. Thank you for giving us the Spirit, whose job it is to help us see and affirm and love Jesus and all that He offers. I pray that He would be active in this room right now. That he would open our eyes to see the beauty of all that Jesus offers us and give us faith to trust it in Jesus' name. Amen.